Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. The reading this morning is coming from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, uh, verses 21 to, I think it's 35. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So much Tracy. Y'all can have a seat. Um, <clears throat> again, if you're just walking in or just tuning in, uh, my name's Arnaldo. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. We're about halfway through now our series called Formed. And so far, we've looked at how Christ is formed in us. That is uh, how we get to uh, be involved, how we get to partner with God in what he is doing uh, in us. Not so that we can just believe in Jesus, uh, but by grace, start behaving like Jesus. Uh, then we looked at prayer, and then we looked at uh, fasting together. Um, and then last week, we looked at the art of reading, of memorizing, and obeying scripture for the sake of our formation. And today, um, uh, we're supposed to be doing silence and solitude, but I'm going to fold that in to next week, Lord willing. Not that that's not an incredibly important subject or topic or practice for us to uh, learn to practice uh, in our loud and noisy and distracting and distracted world. We need to learn to be alone and be alone well. Uh, That's something that we all need, but something that we need, I I think, far uh, um, uh, more just imminent, just closer to us, deeper to us, is actually uh, we need to learn to practice forgiveness together. Uh, That's something that is at the heart of the gospel, something that is at the heart of our faith. It uh, sits right in the center of uh, God's interaction with us. And so while fasting may be the most neglected practice in the Western church, I think uh, that forgiveness takes the crown as the most misunderstood. Uh, Fasting may be neglected, but forgiveness is vastly misunderstood. And, and for me, as I've thought about this and as I've labored this week over this sermon is, if the measure of the success of this church, which we say often, if the measure is going to be love, the way that we love one another, uh, then we need to learn how to forgive. That's something we need to learn. It doesn't come uh, very natural uh, to us, as we will see. In a world of hurt and of pain, in a world of and, and when I say world, I mean even like just our own interpersonal relationships in this church, uh, in a world of hurt and pain, betrayal, letdown, miscommunication, uh, immaturity, backbiting, and gossip, uh, as we are on the way sinners, still growing up in Christ, what we need to learn most is what forgiveness is and how to receive divine forgiveness so that we'll be able to grant it to others. Because Martin Luther uh, King Jr. said this, that he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. If we do not learn how to forgive, we're going to be unable to love. I will, uh, you, we can never say that I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. 
And my prayer and my hope is that we would, by the end of today, walk away with our understanding just a little bit deeper of our own personal need of forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness, and then our responsibility to forgive. But before we do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we stand here. Uh, we sit here, uh, not based on anything we've done, Lord, but based on the finished work of Christ. And so we, we thank you that we don't have to come here to perform. Uh, we don't have to come here to pretend, uh, Lord, but we come as uh, uh, sinners being made saints, Lord. And so we thank you for your grace to us. And I ask now that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people today and help me to remember the things that will be. I pray that you would draw those who are far near today. Uh, and I ask more than anything, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, October 2006, a small Amish town called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Uh, you may remember this. Some of you may not have even been born at that point, but a lone gunman commits suicide in a one-room schoolhouse there. Now, before taking his own life, uh, he shoots 10 children uh, uh, ages uh, 7 to 13, five of whom later on go on to pass away. Now, a few hours later, think of, uh, this is hours later, not days, not weeks, not months. A few hours later, members of this Amish community, they visited the killer's family expressing sympathy for their loss. The Amish all actually got together and all expressed, including the parents and the family members of the children who were fatally and otherwise wounded, uh, they all extended forgiveness to the murderer and to his family. And for a while at that point, America looked on and there were calls to emulate this kind of uh, astonishing portrayal of forgiveness. They, they all extended forgiveness in the face of some of the deepest tragedies, the senseless loss of life, children nonetheless. We've heard other stories like this. September 2018 in Dallas, Texas, Amber Geiger, a police officer, came home from work, but she entered into the wrong apartment. When she, when she saw Botham Jean, an unarmed black man, watching TV in his own home, she shoots him and kills him right there on his sofa. Now, Geiger was later on sentenced to 10 years in prison, and at her sentencing, uh, Brant Jean, uh, Botham's brother, publicly embraces her and publicly forgives her. Now, the time between uh, the Amish incident and this 12 years later, uh, the incident in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, the public's response was very different at this time. Or the story of Tom Skinner. You may have heard of him, an African-American man who was a thug-turned-evangelist in 1956 who preached one of, if not one of, like, if not one of the greatest sermon that I've ever heard in the 70s. Just a few weeks after he comes to the Lord, he tells this story. I'm going to quote him at length here. He says, in a football game, several weeks later, my newfound Christian love met another test. After a play, we were getting up from the ground to head back to the huddle, and the kid that I happened to block got up and was furious. He jumped in front of me and slammed me in the stomach. As I bent over from the blow, he hacked me across the back. I hit the ground, and as he kicked me, shouting, you dirty black N-word, I'll teach you a thing or two. He goes on to say, under normal circumstances, the old Tom Skinner would have jumped up and pulverized this white boy, but instead, I got up from the ground and I said to him this, you know, because of Jesus Christ, I love you anyway. The kid threw his helmet down to the ground, ran off the field, and couldn't play for the rest of the game. When the game was over, he met me in the locker room and he said this, Tom, you've done more to knock prejudice out of me by telling me that you loved me than you would have if you'd socked me in the jaw. Or one of the greatest and quite frankly unbelievable stories of forgiveness captured in Corey Ten Boom's 1972 book, The Hiding Place. She tells the story of her experience as a Dutch Christian whose family used to uh, hide Jews to help them escape from Nazi occupation in the Netherlands during World War II. Now, Corey and her sister Betsy, they were caught aiding Jews, and they were both sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where, camp where Betsy died, but Corey survived. Now, I want you to fast forward now. The war is over. It's 1947. Corey is in Germany on a speaking tour as she's sharing the gospel abroad, and after one of her speaking engagements, she notices a man walking to her after she comes down from the podium. She notices that this was a guard at the Ravensbrück concentration camp, and while he didn't recognize her, you better believe she recognized him. 
And he told her all that he had done and and how he'd since come to Christ and he sought forgiveness for all the quote-unquote cruel things that I did there. And so he takes out her hand to shake her hand and Corey in that moment freezes, unmovable. His hand is out, waiting, hers in her pocket, unmoved and seemingly unmovable. Can you imagine being confronted with the person who represents right now in front of you what happened to six million plus Jews and others. Can you imagine what would you do? And not only uh, just this kind of, kind of uh, general six million Jews, your sister, your, your sister who you love, who you saw die in this concentration camp from the hiding place. Corey Ten Boom says this about that experience, which took place in a matter of a few milliseconds for her. She says this, quote, forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of the will. And she said at that point, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. She said this to him, I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. She says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, listen, like it or not, believe it or not, think that's an unhealthy dynamic or not, uh, the question is, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with these people's intimate experiences, their, 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 uh, their unnatural ability to forgive? And some of us are here wanting to be like them. Others of us are here. We could never see a way that we could ever even come close to even thinking about thinking about thinking of becoming that kind of person or even maybe even wanting to become that kind of person. But the question for us is, how do we move forward as disciples of Jesus because we've got a lot of questions and rightly so right doesn't forgiveness mean that people don't take responsibility doesn't forgiveness mean that perpetrators aren't held account uh, and held accountable for their actions doesn't forgiveness mean that people can do whatever the hell they want to whomever they want and just ask for forgiveness without changing doesn't forgiveness open up the way to abuse what about justice Do we have to choose between forgiveness and justice? And now I want to give my answer up front, and then I want to explain it in a moment, but the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely, unequivocally not. Forgiveness does not mean the lack of or absence of accountability. It does not mean the lack of justice. It does not mean that we make it easy for abusers to abuse. And if you feel this or you've thought this or you're feeling or thinking this even now, I want today, I hope today, I pray today that there will be some cobwebs cleared up of the lies and the disinformation that we believe, particularly in the church and in the culture, about what forgiveness is. Because there are models of forgiveness in the church and in our culture that are absolutely detrimental to the life of our churches, our societies, our mental health, and our relationships. We get, listen, we get forgiveness wrong We miss out on not only seeing the gospel actually operate in our lives, but we potentially destroy ourselves and others. And so this is what we're going to be doing as we've been doing every single week. What is forgiveness? What forgiveness is not? So what it is, what it isn't, and how can forgiveness become possible for us? How how, how can we actually like walk in forgiveness as the people of God? Now, before I jump in, I want to pray again because I sense... And more than I sense, I know there's a lot of hurt in this room, a lot of unforgiveness, a lot of uh, bitterness even. And so I want to pause to pray just one more time uh, to to just set our hearts uh, ready for the Holy Spirit to do a work in us. Let me pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would soften us, that you would uh, make these walls of bitterness and unforgiveness porous this morning that your grace would be able to flow through them, uh, that your grace would be able to leak through them, that there would be cracks in those walls, Lord, and that your shining light and love for us would, would break them down, we pray this morning. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so forgiveness, I want to say, is this. Forgiveness is this. It's, it is releasing someone from having to pay their own debt that is created by their offense. And by doing so, we are absorbing that debt into ourselves and being open to the possibility of reconciliation. 
And this means that forgiveness will always, 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 always involve voluntary suffering. Always. Forgiveness is suffering because there is, uh, uh, for there to be a need for forgiveness, there must have been some kind of transgression, some kind of uh, offense, some kind of missing the mark, what the Bible calls sin. And not every need for forgiveness means there has been some moral failure. Now, imagine I lend you my car and you wreck it. Just, I, I buy a car, you need a car, I lend it to you, you wreck it. Now, the fault is yours because you just had to refresh Instagram, you, you had to check that email, you weren't paying attention, and it's clearly your fault. Now, the car is totaled, and I initially paid for it, but someone's got to pay to fix it. A few things can happen at that point. No one pays, and I no longer have a car, and therefore I'm suffering because now i got to take public transport with everyone else right? I'm suffering in that way because of my lack of car. Or I can pay for it and I suffer the losses or you pay for the repairs and you suffer the losses. Or, you know, what if I say, hey man, it's, it's all good. I've got it. I'll fix it up. And what I'm doing at that point is I'm releasing you of your debt. There was a debt created by what you did. And, and if I release you and I pay for it, I'm releasing you of your debt and I'm incorporating the debt into myself. I'm voluntarily suffering on your behalf because someone has to pay. The transgression or the mistake, the sin, the offense doesn't just vanish into thin air. A wrong has been done. Some, a chasm has been created, a harm has been felt or experienced, and the fabric of the world and in each and every one of us says something must be done because of this. It, just imagine if you just refuse to pay. That would be wrong, right? Like we all, we all feel that. We all, we all get that. Even, even when it's something small, like someone spills wine on your shirt and it's ruined. That, that, that's a wrong that has happened. Now you can either throw the shirt away, suffer the losses because you've paid for it. You can send them the bill. They can pay for it. Or the dry cleaner, because you know them, can clean it for free, right? But it costs somebody something. It may not have cost you something or the perpetrator something, but it costs someone something. The point is this, that, that we all know that there are needs of forgiveness. There are chasms. There are gaps in our world that need to be covered with forgiveness. And that happens only because there's a debt that's created when something wrong happens. You see, where there's a need for forgiveness, there will always involve a debt, a debt. And if you decide to forgive and release that person from that debt, you will suffer some kind of loss, and that is what forgiveness is, right? Because forgiveness is releasing someone from having to pay their own way, their own debt that's created, uh, and you absorb that debt into yourself. You voluntarily suffer, and now you are open to the possibility of reconciliation. And so in light of this definition, we must understand what it isn't also. It's clear to say this is what it is, but so many of us are walking with defunct ideas of what forgiveness is that that's actually detrimental to our being formed in the way of Jesus. They cause more harm than good and have often led to so much psychological damage in the church and the perpetuation of abuse and wrongdoing, particularly in the church, that we need to dismantle because we're not on about abuse. And super helpful here has been Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller's book, uh, simply called Forgive, which I cannot, highly, I cannot more highly recommend. If you want a copy, there's one on my desk. Whoever wants to scurry and steal it, it's yours. I'm giving it away, so it's yours. It's on my desk. Now, in it, he describes these three models of forgiveness and how they fall short of real forgiveness. And the first model is this. It's cheap grace. And cheap grace is often found in the church. It's a, the non-conditional forgiveness model in which all the emphasis victim being therapeutically liberated from anger. Confrontation with the perpetrator may be involved, but only if and to the degree it helps with the victim's inner healing, which is the only real concern. And this, this therapeutic model, this, this cheap grace model, doesn't care so much. It would rather just forgive and just forget easily. And while the inner healing and positive feelings for the victim are important, forgiveness is not, listen, and because this is the model that a lot of us are working with. That's not what forgiveness is about, primarily, about how we feel, our inner feelings. It's not primarily about that. Forgiveness is a, a relational category. Remember, forgiveness is, is an act. It's, it's not just a feeling. It's a relational category, and that's not just about our mental health or the health uh, uh, of what we're feeling, but actually the health of our relationships and our societies. The other model that we have is little grace which is the transactional forgiveness model in which all the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness. 
So you've done something wrong. I'm going to make you pay. The victim gives up anger only if the wrongdoer earns it through extensive acts of repentance and reparation. Rather than this model of forgiveness focusing on the therapeutic, on how I'm feeling inside, it focuses on the wrongdoer paying back that debt. And it's then and only then where forgiveness, which really isn't forgiveness, is offered. This is the I forgive, but you're going to pay it off and I'll never forget. I'll forgive you, but you will be my slave now. Because I need you to pay this off, and I will never forget. But as Corrie ten Boom said in that same book, uh, she says, God throws our sins into the deepest sea, and then he sets up a no fishing sign. And then the other model is the no grace model, the no forgiveness model in which forgiveness is abandoned altogether completely in favor of the pursuit of justice for the victim. This is the most current and active model of forgiveness known as cancel culture where absolutely no forgiveness is granted even for things you're willing to admit you were wrong on. Even if it was a 10-year-old 140 character tweet that you put out, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. There is absolutely no grace, only hard, cold, impersonal, unbending justice. And this is where our culture currently operates. And so, however, which way you cut it, the way you slice it, when it comes to forgiveness, we're in trouble. There's a lot of defunct models that we carry in our minds. The no grace model of forgiveness is anti-gospel. Because it offers no hope for change, no hope for transformation, no hope for reconciliation. The little grace model of forgiveness is also anti-gospel because it offers you a pseudo-forgiveness that as long as you work and work hard for it, you'll earn it. The cheap grace model of forgiveness is also anti-gospel because it refuses to pursue justice. None of them work and and fall woefully short of what the scriptures call costly grace. Now, costly grace refuses, and you need, to be, you need to hear me here, costly grace refuses to pit justice against forgiveness. It doesn't do that. It can't do that. Costly grace pursues both justice and a heart that forgives. An example of costly grace comes to the story of Rachel Den Hollander. You may have heard of her, and she's a, a Christian advocate for justice in the States, and she's a, a former gymnast. It was quite a big story who was sexually assaulted multiple times by the USA gymnastics physician Larry Nassar. You may have heard the story. Den Hollander broke her silence in 2018 and was the first woman to publicly accuse him, which led to hundreds hundreds of other women who, uh, who had stories of Nassar's abuse. And at the arraignment, uh, she stares at him in the face, and she says this in the courtroom. She says, I pray that you experience soul-crushing, the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Listen to this, though I extend that to you as well. What's happening here? Den Hollander is not operating out of the no grace model which rules our culture today. She's offering forgiveness. She is not operating out of the little grace model that offers forgiveness only after Nassar has done his time and has shown some remorse. She's not operating out of the cheap grace model because she is confronting her perpetrator. She's naming the facts, confronting his heinous sin and calling the public courts to not spare him of the legal and the right consequences of his actions. No, she is suffering. She is willingly suffering voluntarily suffering when she's releasing him from the ultimate psychological penalty of his sins. And listen, and then she prays for him that he would find the ultimate release and escape from the eternal ones as well. That is costly grace. This is why I want to just press this into you. Forgiveness is releasing someone from a debt that they've created because of their offense, and you absorb that debt into yourself And you open up the possibility for reconciliation. And so that's what forgiveness is. And this is what forgiveness isn't. And so the question for us is, how do we do it? How do we actually become a people uh, who, who, like the one who has forgiven us? Because honestly, listen, it seems so impossible. Doesn't it? Am I the only, maybe I'm the only one. But it seems incredibly impossible for us, for me, for all of us to become these kind of people. 
right? How can uh, Tom Skinner forgive? How can Rachel Den Hollander forgive? How can Corey Ten Boom forgive? How can the Amish forgive? How can Brandt forgive? This seems like something only the super spiritual elite can actually do. But let me tell you something, that if you have the Spirit of God in you this morning, you can become this person. You can. It's possible. You can. And not only can you, but you will, you will want to. You can become the kind of person who wants to forgive. You can become the kind of person that even when it is difficult, your desire and your actions move towards reconciliation and forgiveness because you know that you've been forgiven. So what do we need in order to become a people of forgiveness? What kind of forgiving people should we become? Now, the disciples had the same question, and Peter says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And now, Jesus has already been talking about forgiveness and reconciliation in the previous uh, section where he outlines the process by which we are to handle our grievances with those who've sinned against us. And, and Peter's like, all right, bet we, we get that. You've given us the process. Thank you. But how many times am I required to forgive? How many times? And off the bat, we can read between the lines. You can feel the, 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 the ethos of this question. The question reveals Peter's heart. The question reveals this, that Peter is trying to do the bare minimum and stay in the good graces of our Lord, right? What we do. How much do I need to do? Seven times? And this is the thing. Peter was being really generous here because the Talmud, which, which is, uh, the Talmud is, is this uh, ancient Jewish authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. And the Talmud required you to forgive three times. And so Peter's like, I'm going to double it and put a bit on top. Seven times? I mean, how, how good do I look if I'm coming to Jesus? Everyone knows three times is the limit, but I'm telling you, Jesus, seven times? But Jesus refuses his bet, and he raises him. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He's like, hold on, Jesus. I know 1 Corinthians wasn't written yet at this point, right? Like when this was happening. Love counts no wrongs. Like, what do you, what do you like? So I have, I have to tally up now. I have to keep a record of wrongs, which scripture tells us not to do. What is going on here? Right now, the number seven is the number of completion in scripture. And you're going to find in different translations uh, this word, uh, 77. It's going to be translated in different ways. Uh, some scholars think that uh, it's the, the number 77. Others think it's seven times seven, which is 49 times. Or others think that it's seven times 70, 490 times. But whether it is 77 or seven times seven or 70 times seven, the point isn't that Jesus is giving you a new number over and above three, which is the new, constitutes the new level of forgiveness. The difference isn't like Peter's generous offer over the Talmud. The difference is much larger. Jesus is communicating this, that there is no limit to forgiveness. That's a hard word for us to hear. Unless you know who you are. But there is no limit to forgiveness, Jesus is saying here. And to the point, he tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We love this part of the story. This is, this is a good part of the story. So what is going on here? There's a man who owes a debt to the king, and actually there's several people who owe money to the king, and he, be he begins to collect. He sends out his enforcers, and he says, he calls out the IRS, the man. He says, go get my money, right? And there was a guy who couldn't pay what he owed, and so he goes before the king, and he, he begs him, he pleads with him, saying, just give me more time. And as, as, as the response to this request of just give me an extension to pay, he forgives his entire debt. His entire debt, all 100 talents. Now, this is crazy because we don't understand the amount of money that this is. Let me translate 10,000 talents uh, because 10,000 talents sounds like $10,000 to us. Like that's not, a, that's not nothing to forgive, right? Uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. If we translate the amount of 10,000 talents in today's terms, that would become 408 billion USD. 611 Australian 
US billion, 611. Who has? Raise your hand. I'm outing you out. Who has $611 billion here? Because if you do, we need, like, we need to fix the sheds. You let me know, right? But 600, do we even understand? Like, can we conceive of what 611, like you go to someone and you say, just give me, he, he didn't need more time. He could never pay this. He, there was no amount of time that this servant could have been given to pay this debt $611 billion. I mean, no king at that time would have imagined of this amount. That There's no way that these city-states even had a GDP of $611 billion. Today, only 38 of 177 countries pull over $400 billion USD gross domestic profit. The amount is meant to be ridiculous, and we miss it. But it's meant to be utterly ridiculous. The talent was the greatest currency that they had. It's the greenback of the day, all right? There's no greater currency during that time than the talent. And in Greek, the, the, the number 100 was the, the, the biggest number that had a specific name. Jesus is saying this. What he's painting is there is an immeasurable and infinite debt that this servant owes the king. This is what the man, this servant, was forgiven. An infinite and immeasurable debt. Let that settle on you for just a moment. There's an immeasurable and infinite debt that this man owes the king, and he is forgiven. He may have been sincere in his plea to the king to allow him pay back uh, time, to pay back everything, but Jesus is trying to communicate there is no way. Listen, there's no way he could have paid this back. Zero. Zilch. Not in a million years could he have paid this money back. And so what does the king do? The king absorbs the debt. Money that is his, that's his due, that should be his, he absorbs the debt. And the servant is now not responsible to pay one single penny back. How would you feel? If right, and no one has a $611 billion house, but some of us have mortgages, some of us have loans. Imagine if you walked into the bank, whatever amount that is, and you were just forgiven. How would you feel? A couple million bucks, maybe? How would, $611 billion, this man was forgiven. And rather than pass that on, this is what happens. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And so also, and this is where the anvil drops, and so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. This is a heavy word us this morning. And we're all shocked, we're scandalized, or we feel like we should be, but we know that this is the normal human story. When we boil this story down, it's basically about someone who has experienced unprecedented levels of grace and mercy and generosity and kindness, but does not treat other people in that way. This is what the story is about. At, at most, listen, at best, uh, this, uh, this, the, this amount of denarii that he owed, uh, let, let, me, let me translate this. Okay, so it, it, let's, just, let's just put it in hundreds of dollars. Let's just say you owed someone 600 bucks, right? And they forgave you the debt, and then you leave their house, and you see someone who owes you $5, you start choking them out. That's the story here. That's, that's the difference. It's, it's less than 1% of what you were just forgiven. And just imagine... It's like Homer Simpson on Bart. You just start choking him out in the street. Like, pay me what you owe. For $5, you were just forgiven 600 bucks. And for $5, you start choking this guy out. This is exactly what is going on. 
I mean, you would leave rejoicing. You would leave lighthearted. Your debt has been lifted. You have been forgiven. You can't, you should not even, like, you should want to wait. You can't wait to be generous. And yet, bro, you owe me five dollars. I need that. I need that. It's really not that hard. It really isn't. Listen, it's really not that difficult for us to understand what's happening here. What, what, what the point of what Jesus is trying to get across. God is the king. We're his first forgiven servant. The 10,000 talents is the infinite and immeasurable debt we owe God. God created us. He sustains our life every moment of every single day. Every single breath that you have taken up until this point and every single breath that whatever the Lord gives you up until the point where you go to see him is gift. Pure gift. He owes you nothing. Nothing. Gift. Like pause for just everyone. Take a, like take a breath. Take, a, take an intentional breath. Gift. Unmerited. Like life, existence is a gift. And as such, listen, as such, we owe God our supreme love. We owe God our supreme affection. We owe God our supreme obedience, our supreme allegiance. But we give it over to a thousand other things. And, and we act like we haven't incurred a debt. A debt that no man, no woman, child, black, white, Asian, free slave can ever pay back. There is no one who has walked this earth who has not received God's lavish mercy, his grace, his generosity, his kindness. And there's no one who's walked this earth, bar Jesus, who has not, who, oh, sorry, who has given their supreme love and allegiance to Jesus. We have all fallen short and it shows and where that shows the most is the fact that we don't pass on. If you call yourself a Christian here today, it shows in the fact that we fail to pass on the lavish grace with which we have been showered with. And as believers, those who say they've been forgiven by God, we fail to treat others as we should, just like the first servant. As Keller notes in his book, Forgive, this parable is an account of forgiveness failure because that is the normal human story. If you believe the gospel, that you are saved by sheer grace, by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, and you still hold a grudge, listen to me. If you believe the gospel, that you are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, and you still hold a grudge, at the very least, it shows that you're blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life, or you're kidding yourself. And perhaps you don't believe the gospel at all. Either way, spiritually speaking, to not forgive someone is to put yourself in a kind of jail. And so how do we do this? How can we learn to forgive? How, how, like, this is a responsibility. This is, this is not, listen, we talk a lot about invitations here. And yes, Jesus is inviting us to this new life. But once we RSVP, we better show up. And showing up means that we become a people of forgiveness. And a couple things, two, two ways. Um, we need to learn to deconstruct some of the broken models of forgiveness that we've been working with. We need to understand that there are ways that we operate, ways that we think forgiveness works, uh, that we have to deconstruct. Forgiveness is not cheap grace, which only concer concerns itself with inner peace, which is, which is honestly most of what I hear, right? You forgive someone so that you can feel good. Right? You forgive someone because to not forgive someone is like, what is it? It's like drinking poison and hoping they die. Right? We've heard that. And that's not totally untrue, but forgiveness is not primarily about how we feel. Forgiveness is not cheap grace, which only concerns itself with inner peace of the victim without any regard to true justice. Forgiveness is not little grace, which tries to make the perpetrator earn their forgiveness. Forgiveness is not no grace, which is alive and well in our canceled culture. Rather, forgiveness is costly grace. It is voluntary suffering. It is refusing to make them pay and you packing up and you picking up that emotional bill. And so we need to deconstruct some of the broken models of forgiveness that we've been working with, which we've done a bit. But the second thing is we need to understand the direction of forgiveness. If we're going to become a people of forgiveness, we need to understand the multi-directional way that forgiveness actually works. You see, the point of the story is that the first servant 
has been forgiven this infinite and immeasurable debt, and this should lead him to have resources and to be able to and to want to forgive those who owe him, especially if it's less than 1% of what he was forgiven. And there are three directions of forgiveness that we need to understand if we're going to be people who are shaped by it in this community. And the first is downward. If we're going to get forgiveness right, and if we're going to be a, become a people of forgiveness, we need to understand that we have been forgiven first. You, you've got to get that. Forgiveness has first come down to us. And when we repent and receive God's forgiveness, we're given a new identity. We are a forgiven people first and foremost. Our debt, our eternal debt is paid. Our slate is clean. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to brag a little bit on the Lord's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Come now, Isaiah says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like Whoa. He will later on to say, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Peter in his sermon says this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, therefore, Acts 3.19 says, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. He has delivered us, Paul will say to the Colossians, from the, from, from, from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will say this at the last supper, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He does not deal, Psalm says, with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his chesed, his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Zephaniah will say this, the Lord has taken away judgments against you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will, quiet your, he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Past, present, future, sin, forgiven fully in the cross. But you know why you can't forgive your mother? You know why you can't forgive your spouse? You know why you're harboring bitterness towards your brother or sister? You know why we can't forgive the someone who, the, that person who slighted you or overlooked you or snubbed you? You know why you can't forgive that friend that betrayed you all those years ago? You, you want to know why you can't conceive, you can't even begin to imagine that you'd be the kind of person that would stick out your head to shake a pre, uh, 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 someone who was a Nazi? You want to know why you can't imagine being called a disgusting racial slur and responding with, I love you because of Jesus. You want to know why you can't imagine having your child killed by a psychotic and deranged gunman and offering forgiveness to his family. Because we've lost sight. We've lost sight of the debt that we have been spared from. We have lost sight of the fact that we have been given, we have been forgiven an immeasurable and infinite debt that we owe God. That we, oh God, we, we forget. We forget that our sins have been forgiven. Maybe you thought you were a pretty decent person. Hey, you're no Nazi sympathizer, so you must be okay. Maybe you thought Christianity was about life enhancement and not death and resurrection. Maybe you've come to Jesus to just give you a bit of a boost that other ideologies or religions couldn't give you. Maybe you've been told that your refusal and your failure to love God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul has left you with a debt of about five or six dollars. Maybe that's what we think we owe God. 
And maybe we think that if we come on Sundays and we do whatever we do, we're settled. Maybe you've only been told that God loves you, which is so gloriously true. But what makes it even more glorious is this, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love makes us lovable, and every day we should be astounded. We should be, listen, it is good news for us to know the debt that we owed God, to, to know the utter sinfulness, the utter alienation that we had from God before he saved us. The point of this parable is that this then should translate into us being willing and able and eager even to follow in the footsteps of our master. And so the first direction is downward from God to us. And when we're wronged, two things have to happen then. The other directions is the forgiveness needs to move inward. Before being able to forgive the person, which is a relational category, happens between people. But before that happens, two things need to happen. It needs to happen inwardly. We need to forgive the person from the heart, Jesus says. We must forgive from the heart, not just from the lips. And as you forgive your offender inwardly, as you, as you work and as you, as you wrestle the gospel into your heart that you have been freely and fully forgiven of an infinite and an immeasurable debt, we can forgive from the heart and we can actually open the path towards reconciliation. And in cases, listen, I want to say this. I want to, I want to add a caveat here where in cases where you have seriously considered God's forgiveness of you, and you've internalized it, and you've forgiven your brother or sister, your mother, your, 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 your father, whomever it is, but they remain, they still remain un- impenitent, and they remain unrepentant, or they're, they're stubbornly stuck in their sinful patterns. While it's still possible, listen to me, listen to me well, while it's still possible to forgive them inwardly and to offer that forgiveness outwardly, reconciliation may not be possible at this stage, even as we pray and we hope that that is the goal of true forgiveness. And so I want to I wrap this up. I need you guys to forgive me because I've gone on a bit longer than I, I should have, but y'all have suffered enough, and now you need to forgive me. But I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to close up here. But, but if we're going to become a people that, that, that are shaped by forgiveness, listen, we need to deconstruct some of the false ways, some of the ideas about forgiveness uh, that create roadblocks for us. And second, we need to understand the directions that forgiveness needs to travel. First, it needs to travel downward. We are forgiven. We need to remember. We need to meditate on the reality that we have been forgiven an infinite and immeasurable debt. And then when we're wronged, and we will be wronged, by people sitting next to you in this room. Actually, that's, if you don't know them, they can't, like, it has to be people who we know who we're rubbing shoulders with. When we're wronged, we need to work that gospel, that reality, that forgiveness inward and to see how we, how I have been forgiven by God based on what he's done. And then based on that forgiveness, based on the fact that I've been forgiven, I can forgive you your $5 debt. But in order To attempt reconciliation, we must allow for forgiveness to move outward towards the perpetrator and offer them the other cheek and open up the way for reconciliation. This is not natural, guys. It's not. We need the Holy Spirit. This is not natural for us to do. What's natural is to retaliate. What's natural is if you bruise me, I kill you. That's, That's natural. And this can take time. This doesn't happen instantly. Sometimes you have to afterpay forgiveness. Sometimes it's not in your bank sometimes it's not in your bank account. Sometimes you don't you don't feel like you have it. And yet by grace and by faith you offer forgiveness and we move towards them. It's often in the act of extending the hand that grace flows like electricity. But we often expect, expect grace to flow while our hands are firm within our pockets, waiting, waiting. But it doesn't happen until we extend our hands. So the question for us today is who do we need to extend forgiveness to? Who do you need to extend the hand of forgiveness to? And as you think about how you've been wronged and what you need to forgive, the rage inside of you and the sadness, the grief, the trauma, I, I hope and I pray that you would look to the king who himself became a servant for you. When we live in unforgiveness, we're servants. 
acting like kings, as if we're in the place to dispense or withhold forgiveness at will. But we're all servants acting like kings. And the only thing that's going to melt our hearts is to see the true king becoming a servant. We should be the ones being judged, but we hold the gavel. The Lord should be the one holding the gavel, but he was the one who was judged. He was the one who came down and put himself in the dock and hung on a cross, ashamed and naked and mocked and bruised. Why? So that we would be forgiven and immeasurable and infinite, that he was punished for us. Because remember, forgiveness means voluntary suffering. It means taking upon oneself the debt that was due. And on the cross, Jesus said, I got the bill. I will pay. I will suffer. I will pay the debt that humanity owes to God. And God, in that way, himself pays. And here at the cross, we don't see one lick of justice not being met. Where The cross is where perfect justice and perfect love meet, neither being compromised, but both being achieved. And it's only, listen, guys, it's only by meditating on the cross. It's only by, by meditating on what God has done for you. It's only by meditating by, by the forgiveness that you have received that you can become a person of forgiveness. You can, we can become people shaped by divine forgiveness when we begin to marvel. We've, we've lost sight of this. It's lost its luster for us. When we begin to marvel at the fact that we have been forgiven an immeasurable and infinite debt, we can quickly and with hearts full of joy and grief say to people, put it on my tab. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the immeasurable and infinite debt that we have been forgiven. Lord, we walk around thinking that we're okay, that you've forgiven us a little. But those who've been forgiven little love little. Those who have forgiven much love much and so as we sing as we sing of your grace as we sing of your goodness let us not lose sight of the fact that that's coming in light of our brokenness in light of our sinfulness in light of the debt that we owe you help us to never forget the fact that we haven't been just forgiven a little but we've been forgiven much Help us to be like that sex worker in the Gospels, Lord, who comes and takes an expensive uh, bottle of perfume and breaks it and, and anoints the feet of Jesus because she knows that she has been forgiven much and so she loves much. And so help us not to give you paltry praise. Help us not to give you the leftovers. Help us not to uh, just think that we, we've not been forgiven much. Lord, we have been forgiven an infinite and immeasurable gift, uh, 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 debt. And you have given us an immeasurable and infinite gift in the gospel. So as we sing, as we take communion, as we fellowship with one another afterwards, may, they be, may, may, may there be reconciliation even now. May, may there be forgiveness even now in this room before it ever steps out of this room. We thank you and we love you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.